Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monta Vista Church of Christ. If you have any questions about our program today, then I'd love to sit down and have a Bible study with you. Come on by the office sometime, or join us for a worship service on Sunday, or one of our Bible classes on Sunday morning and Wednesday evening. If you have any questions about the Bible, then please reach out to Monta Vista, and we'd love to have that Bible study with you. Well, if you've got your Bible handy, then turn to the book of Psalms. It's about halfway through the Bible, and we're going to be looking at Psalm 10. And we'll begin here in Psalm 10, verse 1. Why dost thou stand afar off, O Lord? Why dost thou hide thyself in times of trouble? The writer of this psalm propounds a question that has been asked by probably every human. He wonders why it is that God allows evil people to prosper and inflict great harm on those who are righteous. It is as if, as the text describes, God is standing far away and ignoring the plight of those who are crying, even to the point of hiding himself from the pleas of his people. The prophet Isaiah once remarked in Isaiah 45, Truly, thou art a God who hides himself. Just as Job responds to his broken state of affairs with the words in Job 23 verse 9, When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. When he turns on the right... I cannot see him. When we suffer in our own individual ways, we're tempted to question God as well. A parent grieving for a lost child, a woman who finds herself afflicted by cancer, a Christian whose faith is tested by constant and horrible tribulations, a soldier on the battlefield who sees the destruction and suffering of war firsthand. Why does God allow bad things to happen? One writer made this comment in the pulpit commentary. Why does God stand aloof? Why, after delivering his people from their foreign foes, does he not interfere to protect his true people from their domestic oppressors? He seems neither to see nor hear. The psalmist inquires, why? It can only be answered in his wisdom for his own purposes because he knows it to be best. Perhaps there's a grand reason why people suffer, for their spiritual growth, their maturity, or maybe there is no reason at all. In any case, we need to remember what's said in Deuteronomy 29 verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. We don't always understand why God acts the way that he does or why God chooses not to act. We can't question that providence because God is God and we are human beings. We simply do not have the understanding or the perspective to know all the ins and outs of why God moves in this world the way that he does. 
The psalm brings up several very significant and difficult questions with regard to the success of the evil and the suffering of the good. By studying this psalm, it's my hope that we can each come to a greater understanding of the will of God in our lives. What we must first do is cease from blaming God for all of our troubles. Instead of asking, why am I suffering all the time, we need to realize that it's more beneficial to ask, what can I do in response to my suffering? So the writer goes on to say in Psalm 10, beginning in verse 2, In pride the wicked hotly pursue the afflicted. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked, in the haughtiness of his countenance, doesn't seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. The psalmist now turns to a description of those who afflict him. There are some valuable lessons we can learn from these verses, as we all know individuals who are a lot like the ones described here. Wicked, greedy, boastful people whose only purpose in life seems to be to demean, to brag, and to punish those who attempt to live by righteousness. Notice in these verses how the wicked are not afraid to put effort into their labors. Their pursuit is hot and intense. Their plots are intricate. Sometimes the most evil people in the world are the ones who are willing to put in the most effort to achieve their goals. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised, the writer says. It's only fitting that evil people are foiled by their own plans. And there's nothing wrong with praying to God about this. It's actually quite common in the Psalms. Psalm 35, verse 8. Psalm 141, verses 8 through 10. Psalm 7, verses 15 and 16. Or even in Ecclesiastes 10, verse 8, in another poetic book in the Old Testament. And often this is the fate that befalls sinners, such as Haman in Esther chapter 7, verse 10, who ends up being hung on the very gallows that he had built to kill the Jews. I think it's valuable for us to recognize that it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing for us to pray to God that evil people be caught in the plots that they've devised. That's not necessarily an evil thing. Now, we need to make sure that we're not doing it out of some sense of personal vengeance or that we're just being vindictive, hateful people. But when there are evil people out there who are trying to harm good people, when there are people out there who are devising plots, it's not inappropriate for us to want to see justice be done. And I think that's what the psalmist is asking for. The psalmist isn't asking God to hurt bad people just for the sake of hurting them. He's asking God to bring justice. And what is more just than to be caught up in the very plots that you have devised to harm other people? Now he goes on to say, For the wicked boasts of his heart's desire, and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. Again, we may know people who fit this description perfectly, either from work or school or in our communities. The wicked people described here are those who actually take pride in their corruption. They boast in how many women that they've had sex with or how much money they've made from some illegitimate source. Perhaps they brag about the lies that they've told, pornography that they've acquired, even people that they might have killed. As for the greedy people, they have no trouble prodding God with insults. Instead of giving him the credit he deserves, they take their own credit and praise themselves over the Almighty Father, who deserves every bit of gratitude that we can muster. What foolishness it is to boast in evil. 
Beyond all that, the psalmist examines the fundamental problem behind all of this wickedness. The wicked, he says, in the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. This is atheism. Many atheists try to argue that their philosophies put them on some higher plane than everybody else. They're seeking true knowledge and the secrets of the universe, yet these pragmatic atheists end up rejecting true knowledge by not seeking God. Another passage that you can study on your own time would be in James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. That passage contrasts the wisdom that comes from above, divine wisdom, with the wisdom of the world, which is natural and foolish and demonic even. The motivation behind every wicked deed is selfishness, with no regard to the higher calling of the Lord. Without realizing it, though, the pragmatic atheist ends up hurting his own arguments in practice. For a man who claims to not believe in God, the fellow in this verse in Psalm 10 sure thinks about him a lot. All of his thoughts are, there is no God. It's odd how unbelievers are sometimes more consumed by the idea of God than their believing companions. All his thoughts are. Think about that. All of his thoughts. He's almost obsessed with the God that he claims to not believe in. He's practically obsessed with the God that he claims doesn't even exist. But with every sin that's committed, it takes constant and repeated self-reassurance to convince himself that there is no God. And it really does take a lot of self-reassurance, doesn't it? When you know that something is a sin, when you know that if there is a God, that God's going to judge you, condemn you for what you've done, you really have to talk yourself up. You really have to cheer yourself on to really convince yourself that there is no God. Because if there is a God, and by the way, there is, but if there is a God, all those deeds that you've done, the greediness, the wickedness, harming innocent people, all those deeds that you've done, they're going to be judged. They're going to be judged. Now the psalmist says here in verses 5 and 6 of Psalm 10, His ways prosper at all times. Thy judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all of his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says to himself, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not be in adversity. Look at that phrase again. His ways prosper at all times. First of all, when we look at this phrase, we must not assume that all wicked people prosper all the time. From our perspective, it might seem like his life is pretty easy. As if wicked people always get the best jobs or the nicest cars or the most beautiful homes. They always get the trophy wife or the fame and the fortune and all the magazine covers a person would want. We sometimes consider our own lives and become envious of the evil. Just as another psalmist said in Psalm 73, For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What we fail to realize, though, is that the grass is never really greener. The water is never cooler. The honey is never sweeter. Wealthy, famous, but wicked people are plagued by suffering, albeit different manifestations of suffering. They might have a bad marriage. They might have trouble raising their children. They might be in fear of abuse by the media, constantly concerned and worried about their money. 
miserably addicted to drugs and alcohol, gluttonous, angry, depressed, stressed, and most certainly unfulfilled spiritually. Again, it only seems like the wicked always win in this life. It only seems like it. But if you're only judging the wicked based on those exterior things, the the superficial measures, you'll always come to that incorrect conclusion about the prosperity of the wicked. Thy judgments are on high, out of his sight. While the wicked claim to not believe in God and they mock him with proud words of blasphemy, we need to trust that God is working behind the scenes in this world. For the evil person, though, it's unfortunate that his mind is so clouded by self-absorption that he cannot even see the judgments of God working in his life. Thy judgments are on high, out of his sight. They're out of his sight. And it's only when it's too late can the unrighteous man finally see God for who he is. When a wicked person considers his ways, all he sees is his own success. He's deluded into thinking that he's safe, creating a false sense of security and opening him up to self-destruction. The man in the psalm snorts at his enemies. And by the way, I love that phrase. He snorts at them. He snorts at his enemies, scoffing them with an overconfident strut like a rooster. Let's fear this kind of attitude. Especially when we read the words of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Also, we must understand that this boastful, self-assured attitude is only the beginning of our ruin. If we follow that path in life, we will be destroyed by it. In the book of Proverbs, which is right after Psalms, but in Proverbs chapter 16, look at verse 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. Skip on down to Proverbs 16, verses 18 and 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It is better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. By pride and arrogance, men have lived and died. In death, though, the discovery is that pride really does nothing for us but make the final judgment harder, the final fall more excruciating. The king of Tyre, for example, displayed this same attitude during the time of the prophet Ezekiel. But the Lord quickly pronounced judgment against this self-proclaimed God. And you can read about that in Ezekiel 28, verse 2, and verses 7 through 10. But let's keep moving on in our psalm. So go back to Psalm 10 and look at verses 7 through 11. His mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. He sits in the lurking places of the villages. In the hiding places, he kills the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the unfortunate. He lurks in a hiding place as a lion in his lair. He lurks to catch the afflicted. He catches the afflicted when he draws him into his net. He crouches, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. He says to himself, God has forgotten. God has hidden his face. God will never see it. So we're now given a description of the kind of actions that this wicked man takes. Not only is he boastful and proud, but he uses cruelty to back up his great words. It says his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. He's not just 
cursing every now and then, but he refuses to stop. Everything he says is devoted to deriding or harming somebody else, especially those who are weak. Every thought, every word, every facial expression, every obscene gesture, it's all conducted for the purpose of evil. It's necessary that we understand what kind of victims this wicked person seeks. The words used to describe them include the afflicted, the innocent, and the unfortunate. These are all very powerful words indicating the true weakness behind evil people. The man described in Psalm 10 never attacks or harms the strong, the influential, the dedicated, or the warrior because he knows he can't defeat them. Instead, he looks to pick on somebody smaller than him, children and widows. For a similar interpretation, consider Psalm 94, verses 4 through 7, especially in the phrase, They crush thy people, O Lord, and afflict thy heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger, and they murder the orphans. Do these kinds of injustices enrage us? They should. And if we can look at these vile deeds with no feeling, then it is to our shame. That's why God makes it clear that there are few things more abominable in his sight than cruelty to the weak. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19. And unfortunately, there are a number of people who try to argue that there's nothing wrong with taking advantage of the feeble or even the feeble-minded. They would say, survival of the fittest, right? Well, if somebody's stupid enough to get tricked by me, then he deserves to be taken advantage of. Not according to Psalm 10. In the same way, our Lord condemns such voracity in Matthew 23, verse 14, when he accuses the Pharisees of devouring widows' houses. But in Psalm 10, these people sit in the lurking places. This is a This is a fascinating term because it so precisely describes the way that wicked people often live. Like lions or beasts lying in wait, the person in this psalm lives his life in a constant state of readiness. He seeks his victims, eludes detection, pounces on them in the night, in the dark places on the street. Do we ever find ourselves in the lurking places? Is that the kind of place that a Christian ought to be? What's so shameful is that many people walk directly into the snare of the wicked without even realizing that it was entirely preventable. How many once strong Christians have been led astray while working in disreputable environments? Or how many believers have died in a moment of weakness when faced with great temptation? Or how many of us have become jaded and cynical because we spend all day around sinners and we no longer feel fervor for the gospel? The path of the wicked only leads to dark alleys and mysterious roads. There's danger in the lurking places, and we need to learn to fear them. Because in those lurking places, we find the evil. He crouches down, he bows down, and the unfortunate fall by his mighty ones. Don't be one of the unfortunate. Don't be the unwitting victim. If you can help it in any way, Don't put yourself in a compromising position. Well, in verses 12 through 15, the writer moves on to God. Arise, O Lord. He asks for God to involve himself. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up thy hand. Do not forget the afflicted. Why has the wicked spurned God? He has said to himself, thou wilt not require it. 
thou hast seen it. For thou hast beheld mischief and vexation to take it into thy hand. The unfortunate commits himself to thee. Thou hast been the helper of the orphan. Break the arms of the wicked and the evildoer. Seek out his wickedness until thou dost find none. Why is this psalm important to the Christian today? Because it describes very real people. There are cruel, terrible, vicious people out there who spend every moment of their lives finding ways to harm others, especially those who are oppressed, the weak, the vulnerable. Perhaps we may never see such affliction in the physical sense, but we must open up our eyes to the suffering of our brethren all over the world. In a closer sense, we may find ourselves afflicted spiritually. Consider the imagery in this psalm in a non-physical manner. There are wicked people in organized religions who corrupt the Bible and abuse it to accomplish greedy ends. They boast about the droves of souls who have been caught up in their new religious fads or apostasies. Unbelievers are always looking for ways of disproving the Bible and smearing foulness all over the morals presented in it. When it all boils down, friends, it can be quite disturbing and discouraging for a Christian. But this psalm offers us hope. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up thy hand. The very fact that the writer asks for help from God is evidence that he believes in him. And he believes that God is capable of helping him. He has faith that God can exact justice at the appropriate time. And he refuses to give up that faith no matter how it appears on the outside. He does not give up on God. So he concludes the psalm in verses 16 through 18 by writing, The Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his land. Lord, thou hast heard the desire of the humble. Thou wilt strengthen their heart. Thou wilt incline thine ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, that man who is of the earth may cause terror no more. The writer ends with a few statements about the nature of God and wrath and mercy. The thoughts of these verses are reminiscent of Jesus' sermon from Matthew chapter 5. The meek shall inherit the earth, while those who are engaged in constant evil find themselves cast out from the presence of God. Psalm 10 says, nations have perished from his land. I like this phrase because it places even the greatest kingdoms in a very humble place compared to God. Nations and kingdoms, they come and go every few generations. Even Rome only lasted for a few hundred years at its peak. But the earth remains forever, like Ecclesiastes 1 verse 4 says. And no matter how strong mankind becomes, God is still master and king of everything. And he can destroy a nation at a whim. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. The earth abided underneath their feet, but their kingdoms came and went. And one of these days, even the earth, which seems to abide forever... From generation to generation, even planet Earth, all the creation will be destroyed on the final day. Even the rocks, the mountains, the oceans, even the stars up in the sky and the moon which orbits our planet, all of those things which seem to last forever, even those things will not last eternally. So as we close... I want to tie all these things together with the last two verses of Psalm 10. When we look out to the world and see how successful evil people are, 
whether it's apostate religious teachers, or corrupt politicians and businessmen, cruel warlords in other nations around the world, or unbelievers who mock us and spurn God, it can be very discouraging. And although it might seem like God is doing nothing, sometimes we must always bear in mind the simple truth that God works mysteriously and wonderfully in his own time. We need to remember the sweet words of Romans 8 verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? God stands for us. And maybe we don't always see it right now in our time, but in in an eternal sense, God's will is always done. And so is justice. It's my hope that this brings you comfort if you're going through a time of trial right now. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monta Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 930 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monta Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Amen.